The best I heard was from OEW, one of the gentlemen who was at And it's, you know, we have yes, a lot uh, we to be about these days, uh, even in a world that is kind of crazy. That's why you do a lot of good work. Non-profit organizations and made the decision to, to actually create a 501c3 nonprofit charity. Hey, what is up, everybody? Sean Jenkins here. Today's guest uh, is going to be fairly exciting. And, you know, one of the things that I think is very interesting about what we're talking about today is that uh, it's helping people. It is how to do right by what's uh, right by others and to be compassionate and to uh, be caring to those that you don't know. And it kind of makes me think a little bit about you know, the quote, and it's, uh, nothing good is a miracle and nothing lovely is a dream. And it's, you know, we have a lot to be happy about these days, uh, even in a world that is kind of crazy. And there are a lot of people that do a lot of good work. And so pretty excited to chat about some of that good work with our guest today. Hey, everybody. My name is Kil Cha. Uh, welcome to Meet the Middle. Uh, this is a Two Brown Guys production. So uh, really quick, I'm going to, I think one of the observations that I had is just sustainability and just environmental sustainability. And so one of the things for the company that uh, called Firefighter Fit Endurance is uh, we do a leave no trace because, you know, we want to make sure that we are you know, sustainable. And then we're really focusing on making sure that our impact on the environment is reduced. So <clears throat> long story short is uh, for Halloween, um, we're going to do more environmentally friendly like decorations. So all of the skeletons and the bones in the front of our yard are going to be real. We're doing it for we're doing it for authenticity. No plastics, and uh, it's going to be all natural. We'll we'll make it as fresh as possible because we're going to do it for the kids. So if you can like make a more environmentally conscious Halloween, then you know maybe 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 think about something like that. So, <laughs> with that being said, the fact that I was able to say that without actually laughing uh, is is phenomenal to me. But I'd like to introduce you to a gentleman who I met in Texas. We were doing an endurance event. You know, I don't mind telling it. Uh, we were doing a Spartan endurance. Was introduced to uh, Sean through uh, Dylan, actually. Our uh, guest tonight, his name is uh, Sean Valigura. He's from Operation Valor. Sean, how are you doing, sir? Tell everybody a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Good, thanks. Uh, thank you guys for, for having me on tonight. Uh, my name's Sean Valigura. I live in Austin, Texas. I am a very proud Navy, uh, US Navy veteran. And I'm the founder and executive director for Operation Valor. Awesome. So you were just saying that uh, you, you were in the Navy. Uh, what, what was your MOS and how long were you in there for? Okay, well, um, we don't have MOSs in the Navy. Uh, we, call them, we call them rates. Okay, um, see? It's, it's, the, it's effectively the same thing. It's a, it's a job code or job description. Um, my rate in the Navy was bosun's mate. I was a BM uh, and served, um, after I got out of school, uh, served my entire enlistment aboard the USS John F. Kennedy. Okay. Which is an aircraft carrier, um, home ported, well, it used to be, uh, home ported out of Norfolk, Virginia. So, Sean, my man, I grew up um, in Virginia Beach. Oh, fantastic. Just down the street. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, um, my mom owns a bunch of golden corrals in that area. 
Oh, wow. I never went to a Golden Corral in Norfolk, Virginia Beach. I can't even count the number of times. (laughs) Um, When, I mean, especially, you know, right after payday, um, we would roll out and go down to the military circle. circle. (laughs) Yeah. And and there's a Golden Corral right across the street there. And we used to hit that up because, of course, you know, uh, you got to maximize your calories, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, even when we went out to, to Lynn Haven, uh, out in the Virginia Beach area, yep. um, when we go out there and we would hit it up. Yeah, that was my neck of the woods. I actually lived uh, right down the street from Little Creek Amphib Base. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. I mean, yeah. We all spent a lot of time over there. Yep. That's awesome, man. Uh, okay. So I have um, a little bit of experience with Golden Corral, but this is in Phoenix. But what are you, what's the <laughs> first area of the buffet that you're heading over to, uh, Sean V? Uh, it's the meats. You got to hit up the meats, and then uh, you go for the side items. So you have to have a, a pop, properly constructed strategy going into a golden corral. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I need to hear first, this. What's going on? Meats have got to go first. So you're looking for the roast beef. You're you're looking for maybe some Swedish meatballs, uh, maybe even a little spaghetti with meatballs if that's on the tap for the night. But um, um, that hand-carved roast beef, that's that's the number one item that you have to attack. All right, happy. So, so it's funny. So, I, so Sean, when did you go in the Navy? Like, what year were you in that? 80, little... 87 to 91. All right. So, Golden Corral used to not be a buffet. It used to be a steakhouse. And so, I always remember when it was a steakhouse. And that's, like, my fondest memories. And then they went to the buffet and I became very sad because I used to love getting a New York strip steak at my mom's restaurants. Yep. And then they stopped. And now I'm done talking about Golden Corral. <laughs> <laughs> well, Virginia's a, a stretch. So from Texas, how did you uh, matriculate your way to Texas? Freedom. What? Uh, well, <laughs> after I got out of the Navy, uh, I went uh, back to college. And right as I was finishing up at Auburn University, one of my Navy buddies uh, was just getting out. Uh, we, were, we were on the Kennedy together, and he was from Austin, Texas. So he got out and moved back to Austin, and I think it was his stepbrother-in-law was working in tech support at Dell Computers and got my buddy, his name's Tim, got my buddy Tim a job in tech support there at Dell, uh, Dell Computers, way back when, and uh, one night, uh, I think I was either, I think I was right in the middle of finals week, and he gave me a call, and we were talking on the phone, and he said, hey, you know, we just opened up a couple uh, engineer positions in in my group uh, over in um, manufacturing diagnostics, would you be interested in one of those jobs? And, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on graduation. I said, hell yeah. And he said, well, um, let me give you a call back in a couple of days. Let me talk to my boss, send me over your resume. And I finished up finals and Tim drove out after he finished work Friday at 5 p.m., drove straight to Auburn, crashed for like two and a half, three hours, woke up, we packed, he had a he had the same uh, light blue uh, Geo Metro that he had back when we were on active duty. Still oh, had that same glorious. car. 
and glorious. this one was not so glorious. It had seen better days. <laughs> no, none and of them are glorious. They, they're not. They don't no. even start. I don't know, man. They don't even start glorious when they're no. brand new. <laughs> my my first car was a 1991 Hyundai Excel. There you go. Yeah. I looked at Geo Metro. I was like, man, that's a step up. So <laughs> we we packed every square, every cubic centimeter of space inside that vehicle with my belongings as much as we could fit. And we drove back here to Austin. And I interviewed, we, we got back, you know, late Sunday. And um, I got an interview for Wednesday of that same week. The following Monday, I was working at Dale Fitch Hewitt. So it happened just, you know, bam. Um, just wow. in the, the snap of snap of fingers is what it felt like. And uh, and I was out here in Austin. Cool. Been here ever since. That's, what, 23, 24 years now? So, you, yeah, uh, you, you've, you've most definitely established roots and everything else in the community, haven't you? Yeah, well, well married, got a family now, yeah. all of my names, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, say hi to your, uh, to your lovely wife for me. Hello, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> She's literally in the hall. She's looking at me right now. Okay. So, so, Sean, I will tell you, Austin is the only major city I have not been to in Texas. Well, you will it have is, to come out here and let me know, and I will show you the sites. Yeah, that is it. I family in Dallas. I've been in everywhere: Lubbock, Amarillo, San Antonio for work. I mean, any all the big cities everywhere, but Austin. You know, I, I grew up um, an Air Force brat on military bases all over the U.S. So you know, I've seen a lot of different states. I've seen a lot of different cities, and I, I can easily say that Austin, Texas is my favorite city in the whole world. Wow. Oh, nice. And why is that? Just curious. What's the, because uh, Prague is mine. <laughs> well, um, I have I have family in Prague, believe it or not. Really? I really do. We, we have uh, a, a joint Czech and Italian ancestry. That's and amazing. Just coincidentally enough. Um, but uh, there's a lot of things about Austin that make it great. Um, when I got here, it was a big city that felt and lived like a, a small suburban city. Even though there were, I think at the time when I got here, a million, a million and a quarter people, um, it didn't feel like that. And you had all the amenities that you would have in a big city uh, without a lot of those big city problems. It's certainly got, it's, it's obviously known for its eclectic citizens. You know, you can go from one neighborhood to another and the feel and dynamics completely change. Yeah. You know, you know there's, you know, politically, there's every color of the rainbow, every, uh, every persuasion of, uh, of political slant that you can think of is represented here in Austin. Know, from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other so it's a really fantastic place to live yeah everybody everybody's moving to texas that's uh, <laughs> yeah we've, uh, we've seen i mean ever since i got here and obviously i'm one of those people so i can't criticize too much but we've seen a pretty constant non-stop influx of people you know, and now i think we're we're just over three million now so and there's no end in sight you know the city. The city doesn't even look like what it did. You know, ten years ago, twenty years ago. So, 
Yeah, that's how uh, when I was, when I went back to Virginia Beach after not having been there for uh, twenty years. I think I left in I left in ninety nine. Went back in two thousand sixteen. I was like, there's a downtown now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I went back to to Norfolk for the commissioning of the George Washington. Oh, okay. And I, and I think that was in ninety four. And there were already a lot of uh, growing pains and changes that had been made in the area. You know, sections that I used to hang out in that I didn't uh, even recognize anymore. Progress. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you a question. The first time I was introduced to you was after the 12-hour hurricane heat. Yeah. Um, and I know you're Operation Valor now, but I believe I remember a a name before that um am i allowed to say it uh i don't see why not i don't think you're gonna get in trouble but... okay well i just wanted to make sure uh, <laughs> the the kyle littlefield foundation well there was there was never an organization called the kyle littlefield foundation uh, okay it was just it was just an event um, oh okay so this was before uh, we had even uh, coalesced as a group and made the decision to to actually create a 501c3 nonprofit charity. You know, back then, you know, you're talking 2004, 2005. You know, back in those days, there there wasn't an organization. We were just a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of people who were trying to to do something good. And remember Chris Kyle and Chad Littlefield. And in the process, help you know some veterans that were in desperate need of some help, uh, and that was it. It wasn't. It wasn't until I think May of 2006 uh, or 2016. I'm sorry, that we actually uh, became a part of one CD. So, like, what are what are some of the things? This, you know, I think uh, you know from talking to Kuehl, it's very exciting to talk to you for me because I think you know helping veterans is has been a huge uh, piece of what I enjoy working with organizational wise and um, even the company that I work for we do um, a lot regarding veterans so it's kind of nice but what are some things that you guys are doing just like foundationally to help veterans in need like what are some of those things look like pre-COVID and then you know I say inter-COVID right. yeah, it's <laughs> It really is kind of a you know a division line um, between you know histories, but historically we've operated in a different modality than than many other charities. Um, many of them are uh, direct action organizations uh, who provide some systemic support to individuals, and we we have never done that. Okay. When when we started uh, formulating the idea of what would become Operation Valor, uh, I sat down with Marcus and with Jerry, two of my board members, and we, we talked about this ad nauseum, trying to, okay, what do we want to do? You know, we, we know that we want to help, but how are we going to help? And it dawned on me one night that every great idea that we as a team could come up with had already been thought of by a hundred people, a thousand people. Um, back in 2016, 2017, I did a little research and come to find out at that point in time, there were over 46,000 
veteran-specific nonprofit organizations in the United States. Forty-six thousand. That's all. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. that was. You're talking like. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it occurred. You know, it, it it that's a number that's so big that it kind of shocked you a little bit. And I, I thought, well, you know, I, I know a lot of good organizations. I know a lot of not so good organizations too. But um, any idea I come up with. You know, there's a hundred organizations out there already doing that mission, maybe even a thousand. And out of that, you know, thousand organizations, five or 10 of them have got to be doing an excellent job. You know, if you just took the cream of the crop of those organizations doing that one specific job, I guarantee you, you'll find five or 10 of them that are excellent, but nobody knows who those five or 10 are. So I kicked the idea around with Marcus and Jerry and said, what if we became that organization? What if we went out and spent our time identifying the, the, the organizations that help veterans and are excellent at what they do? Um, they have impeccable financials. Uh, their services and programs are, are spectacular and effective but maybe they're flying under the radar that they're they're not known you know certainly on a national scale but maybe not even on a state or regional scale so we spend our time and effort going out and trying to identify the very best of the best veteran charities out there in in their specific area of expertise and we raise money for them we give them a national platform to garner more interest, uh, to, to help raise more awareness, to gain more followers and supporters. So uh, we're, not the, we're not the traditional charity. You know, our, our job really is to raise money for these other charities. Now, with all that said, uh, that program has been phenomenally successful. Now, of course, I'm a little biased. You know, it's my organization. <laughs> you know, what else am I going to say? Um, but you know, o over the past five years, we've raised over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for these organizations. And these, some of these organizations, you know, that money is larger than their entire yearly budget. And with that money, they can do uh, phenomenal things. But we had a conversation, and uh, Jerry Richardson. Uh, He's on our board. He's the older brother of Chad Littlefield. He came up with an idea and he said, you know what? The one thing that we seem to get more requests than any other thing. And I see on social media veterans asking for more than anything else isn't necessarily help for suicide prevention or alcohol or substance abuse or counseling and treatment for PTSD. The, the one thing that we see time and time again is veterans who are in some type of financial emergency, usually outside the realm of their own control and where they need help immediately and urgently. You know, they, they've been laid off from a job or their house burned down. They've got some critical emergency that can't or just isn't being handled through normal channels. So for 2021, and I, I guess I'm really announcing this to the public right here, uh, we will be establishing uh, the Operation Valor Emergency Fund to help 
fill this gap and need among veterans and active duty members, first responders uh, who have fallen victim to, to some type of accident, catastrophe, emergency, and need financial assistance. So that's going to be a new program that we're going to be kicking off next year. So that's awesome. And you know, it's a thing that's interesting, Sean, and you, it's, you kind of referenced is that's a program that a lot of major companies have Yeah. where, you know, when, and it's just very interesting that there's not something similar and that's for, you know, veterans or first responders, like you said, um, because that's a, you know, my, or my company gives out a couple million dollars a year in that. And it's that $1,200 to pay your rent because you're going to get evicted or $2,000 for the plane ticket to go fly and see your parents before they pass away. Like those are things that some people just don't have the ability to do. And I don't know if that's what you're doing, but that's kind of what our organization does. And I think it's um, immensely good for the well-being, mentally, physically, and for the family. So that's well, awesome. There's, there, there's so many instances where, you know, life just throws you a curveball. Yep. And even the, the most uh, well-laid plans get wrecked and destroyed. Um, in the snap of, of your fingers uh, through no fault of your own. And, you know, I've, I've had veteran friends who's, you know, they, they were making a, uh, a change of station and their car blew up, blew an engine, and they're stranded halfway between their old, their old city and their new city. And, you know, deaths in the family. There, there's, for, I can probably think of a hundred fantastic reasons to have this fund operational, but it's the the thousands of reasons that I can't think of where yeah. I think it will be most beneficial. Yeah, and the only thing we have even remotely close to that in the fire community is the Wildlife Firefighter Foundation. And um, they're the only ones, well, they had been the only ones that were really out there kind of supporting wildland firefighters, uh, specifically the families of wildland firefighters. So. You know, if one of the guys, you know, ended up getting hit and God forbid ended up in the hospital, um, you know, the WFF would fly out the family or, you know, get the family out there, you know, cover costs and cover, you know, bills and stuff like that to kind of like make make life a little less hectic and stressful. Yeah. Um, one of the things you know. that we've done in, in years past is try to connect people who have a need uh, to an organization that can, uh, that can hopefully support them. And, and that's great. You know, there are certainly organizations out there that can, but it falls well short of that. Yeah. There's, there's lots of people who, lots of veterans and their families who are out there suffering um, because there's not enough resources to help everybody. Yeah. And, and I think what's like amazing to me on this is like 46,000 veteran focused charities are out there. That's a lot of charities. You know yeah. what I mean? And and, I don't even know what the number is in 2020, but yeah, it's and, certainly much larger. And you got to wonder where's the inefficiency in 46,000 charities nationwide, you know, and there's still these issues. But yeah, I mean, it, with that being said, the, one of the questions I kind of wanted to ask you uh, was when you're kind of uh, researching charities and organizations, what makes what makes a quality organization to you? What would what would you kind of define a quality organization? Well, we, we've got a set of internal metrics that we take a look at. One of the things that we spend a lot of time researching um, our organization's finances. Now, we're, we're not forensic accountants. 
Um, but, you know, you want to take a look at how much an organization spends on its programs and services as a percentage of all of its net intakes and receipts. You know, organizations that are operating efficiently, that number is going to, that number is going to be a very high percentage. As an organization gets larger and larger, it tends to become less and less efficient. You know, you, you've got more people on staff that have to be paid. You've got more expenses for real estate and, and everything else. And those don't directly go to helping you know, the veteran community, but yeah. you know, you've got to keep your lights on and, and operate. So we, we take that into account and there's a little bit of a graded curve. Because it, would, it wouldn't be fair for us to compare, you know, a company or a, a charity um, that brings in, you know, $50 million a year to a small, you know, regionally specific charity who does about $100,000. Yeah. You know, the, the smaller charity is going to operate much, much more efficiently. So there is a bit of a grieving curve there. But the financials have got to be intact. And they've, there's got to be complete transparency uh, with the public regarding financials. Tax statements, you know, 990, Form 990s to the IRS tell you so much, but they don't tell you the whole story. Then we try and dig into the nature of the programs themselves. The key thing is, are the programs effective? If the programs aren't effective, then it doesn't matter how much money you're spending. And that's a very subjective line to draw. And so we, we try and reach out to people who have gone through these programs and people who have interfaced directly with those charities. And, and we just talk to them off the record. You know, hey, what are your thoughts? How is this? And pretty quickly, you get a, a flavor for each of these, these organizations. Sometimes it's overwhelmingly positive. Sometimes not so much. But in talking with the people who have actually been beneficiaries of these charities, I think you get a much clearer picture of just uh, how much good they are doing in, in, the, in the community. What are some of the, not necessarily metrics, but the types of best in class that you look for? You know, what are a couple of examples of those? Well, it just so happens that I've got notes about that right here. <laughs> I came up with that question on my own, by the way. There was no help with that question. <laughs> I'm looking over the notes of some of the organizations that we took a look at for 2020-2021. The ratio of revenue to expenses, we typically like to see that above 90%. The ratio of expenses to services, we like to see over 80%. And the ratio of administrative expenses to services, we like to see that under 20%, give or take. We also take a look at the breakdown of expenses. Certainly services, we wanna make sure that you know, the services are the lion's share of that, that expense total. Uh, how much are they paying in administrative costs and fees? Um, what about salaries and compensation? All of those things go into determining what the, the financial profile for a charity looks like. Interesting. So um, what has been, can you tell us a story about, maybe give us like your super positive story about maybe the first organization you found that was, you were just really empowered by 
you know, what they said and you felt like this good vibe, like, what, what is that like? Or what was that organization? That's, you can that's say. I can, I can. And this, this might go off the reservation a little bit, but we don't need roads. So we're fine. So this, this kind of involves my own personal story. And if we go back to 2014, before Operation Valor or anything along that line is even uh, an inkling in anybody's mind, um, that spring, well, let me, let me go back actually to 2013. So in late 2013, I got in touch with a very old friend of mine on Facebook, of all places, who I had not talked to in at least 15 years. And I reached out and, and he happened to respond the next day. And, and uh, we had a, a chat on Facebook later that evening and that was followed over the phone call. And, you know, really it was just catch ups type stuff. And, you know, hey, how are you doing? You know, checking out, you know, how are you doing in life? Those kinds of things. Yep. And of course, friend requests were exchanged and we both went about our business. Well, about every two or three weeks after that, I would get these photos from him in his on his page uh, that would pop up in my feed of him doing what these things that I learned were called obstacle course races. I'd never seen one of these before, but you know I'm a military guy I'm from a military family, and I've done my fair share of these. That, that looks kind of cool. So I called him up and said, "Hey, Paul, I keep seeing these photos of you doing doing these obstacle things." tell me more about that. And he goes, oh, those are photos uh, from this uh, thing called a Spartan race that I did in Killington, Vermont. And we sat on the phone and talked for, it felt like five minutes, but it was two hours. And he could tell, he could tell that I was interested. And he said, well, and Paul lives in Dallas. And he said, well, listen, there's one of these events coming to Austin in May. How about if I drive down you know, it's a 45 minute drive from Austin and we'll do it together. And I was like, shit, yeah, let's do it. Now, I'm going to remind you guys, I had no idea. I, I, I had no concept of what this was. So the best way me, to do it. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> well, maybe not so much. So he hooked me up with this group called the Lone Star Spartans, who at the time was a few hundred people uh, scattered around the state who apparently had been doing these things, uh, these OCRs for a few years. And he, you know, I just tried to absorb information from them and what's going on. But I'll be real honest. I'm a former competitive bodybuilder and, and nationally qualified powerlifter. I thought that, you know, I was going to go out there and show everybody how this obstacle course stuff was done. So I was a little bit arrogant. I was. I didn't change up my training at all. I, I didn't change anything. I didn't do any cardio, not, not just running, but cardio of any kind. I just kept doing my thing that I like to do, which is lifting heavy weights. And I just thought I'd go out there and, hey, easy day. It, it'll be fun. And I'll show everybody how to do these. Uh, that's not what happened. So I got my ass kicked out at Reveille Peak Ranch for seven hours and 19 minutes. That course beat me like a redheaded stepchild. And when I finally crossed the finish line, I had three broken bones in my right foot, one in my left, 
a torn groin muscle and a high ankle sprain. And the first words that I said to myself um, after I crossed the finish line were, fuck that, never again, never again. I kind of drug myself over to the biggest team tent and I threw a towel over my head and tried to crowbar my shoes off of my swollen feet. And I broke down and cried. Um, I, I started, it started to, I started to reflect on what had happened that day. We went off in the nine o'clock wave. And as you guys know, they go off uh, in 15 minute increments. Waves are about 300 apiece. I think the, the total registered numbers for the Austin Super in 2014 uh, was like 12,000. It was a packed house. So our, our wave, which was all of, uh, all of the Lone Star Spartans, I mean, that wave had to be 350 people, easy. I was, I was 290 pounds and pretty solid on that morning but i wasn't uh, i wasn't going to set any land speed records at 290 pounds so when we went off at nine, nine o'clock you know invariably the 915 wave catches up to us you know 45 minutes after we start yeah well I, i'm in the back with a few of my friends and there's probably eight or ten of us and of course the the gazelles of the 915 wave <laughs> catch up first and they go bounding by me like I'm standing still. And it wasn't everybody, but, you know, maybe a third of them as they're come, you know, running by me um, would say something really positive and encouraging. You know, it's like, hey, man, keep it up. You're doing great. Or keep going, big guy. Stay strong. Stuff like that. Well, my athletic background is in mostly team sports football, baseball, rugby, and those sports are zero-sum games. Your loss is my gain. I want to step on your throat and choke you out to ensure that my team is victorious. So when all of these people are running by me and saying these things that, you know, an ordinary normal person would think was, hey, that's really nice, I honestly and sincerely thought these people were taunting me. Oh, God, so, no. <laughs> so... so I started to get amped up. Then the 930 wave catches up about 45, 50 minutes later. And it's our instant repeat, you know, same, you know, same situation. And more of these things. Well, I, I'm completely triggered at this point. And I start cussing at these people. You know, I'm and I'm and I'm a Navy guy. I know all the good words. <laughs> I, I just unload on these people and I get a lot of strange looks, right? And but the, everybody keeps on going. Well, the 945 wave catches up a little while later. Um, and I'm still pissed off, and they come by me and it, it starts to happen again. And I, I stop myself and I'm like, wait a second maybe there's something going on here that I didn't realize at first. And then the 10 o'clock and the 10.50, this happens literally all day. I told you guys, I was out on that course for seven hours and 19 minutes. It happened all day long, all day long. And when I was in that tent, you know, licking my wounds and feeling sorry for myself, it dawned on me that there was a certain camaraderie that 
these people felt this need that I had not had since I was on active duty. You know, it was something that, that I was missing and didn't even realize until these thousands of people uh, out at Reveille Peak gave it back to me. And I, I knew right then and there, you know, even though physically I was, I was you know, hurting a little bit, um, I knew that these were people that I wanted to spend more time with, that, that you know, I had quote unquote found my tribe. Um, I knew that these were people that I wanted to do shit with. So uh, when I got home, the first thing I did is looked up where was the next event. And coming to find out, there's an event at the end of October, early November in Dallas, Texas. So I get signed up for that. Oh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That was on Saturday, okay? So on Sunday, I was signed up for both days. Saturday was the super, Sunday was the sprint. The sprint was only like, you know, a 5K, you know, 3.1, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Maybe 3.5 miles. But I I had broken bones in both of my feet, and I could hardly walk. And even when I could, it was extremely painful. So we go back to the hotel room, and my girlfriend and I, my girlfriend at the time, and I go back to the hotel room, and I'm trying to come up with, some type of excuse or reasoning to tell her that I can't, I can't run on Sunday. I can't do that. But I, you know, we go to dinner and I'm trying to think of something to say, man, I can't figure it out. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell her when we get back to the hotel, we get back to the hotel. I can't come up with anything. All right. I'll tell her in the morning, the morning comes and I still don't know what to say, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, I'll get dressed and I'll go out there with her and I'll see her off and, and I'll tell her when we get out to the venue. We get out to the venue and I'm still, I, I can't figure out how to say I can't do this. Uh, I'm in too much pain uh, because I don't want to look like a chicken shit. You know, that's, that's just the truth of it. Well, I, I close my eyes and blink and all of a sudden I'm in the starting corral and you know spartans what is your profession and we're off and i'm like how the hell did this happen to me so i'm back out on the course physically in much worse shape than i was the the day before and as you guys know you know when you have two events uh that are slightly different layouts day you know day after uh day uh consecutive on consecutive days like that um, they'll, they'll reutilize part of the course from the super and just chop it down for the sprint. So there were sections of the layout of the course that were identical. So I'm stumbling and bumbling my way through this as best I can and getting progressively more and more pissed off as I go. And we're, we're coming up on the last, you know, I don't know, the last two miles, last mile and a half or so. And I know we're coming up on the inverted wall. And I barely was able to do it the day before. And I'm saying to myself, you know what? To hell with this. There's no way I can do this with being as banged up as I am. I'm just going to go around it, you know? Well, the way that the, it was set up, there was a bunch of trees and, and bushes that kind of forced a funnel where people could only get in two single file lines. 
So I couldn't just go around and just completely skip the obstacle because of uh, because of the terrain. So I was like, all right, I'll just stand here in line and, and wait. When it's my turn, I'll, I'm just going to walk right past the obstacle. So I'm sitting there in line, feeling sorry for myself. And I look up, and the guy in front of me is wearing an Operation Enduring Warrior t-shirt. And I was like, oh, I know those guys. I've heard of them before. They do, they're really, they do really great work. And, and I noticed this guy is missing one of his arms. And I was like, wow, um, shit, he's standing in line. And then I look at the guy in front of him and, oh shit, he's wearing an Operation Enduring Warrior shirt as well. That guy's got a prosthetic on his left leg. He's still standing in line. And then I see the guy in front of him, and he's missing an arm and a leg, and he's standing in line. And I was going to be damned if I was going to disrespect those guys and walk around that obstacle. They got up there one by one, and they helped each other. But all three of those guys sure as hell made it over that obstacle. And I was going to be damned if I didn't at least give it an honest try. And sure enough, you know, I got my, my fat, lazy ass over that obstacle. And, you know, I watched them go off into the distance. And, and I was like, I want to be more like those guys. You know, I want to be more like them. So one of the first charities that that we reached out to, that I reached out to, was Operation Enduring Warrior. Uh, they've been one of our beneficiaries since day one, and I'm very, very proud to say that. Some of those guys have become very, very close friends of mine that I would absolutely go to war with in a minute. But they are, they're one of the definitions. You know, they, yeah, they don't just you know, say the right things. They do the right things. It's 100% all volunteer operation. Nobody there is making a paycheck. You know, nobody's making commissions. Uh, they're in it to try to help veterans uh, who have been disabled. And it's an honor for us, for me, uh, to be able to work with organizations like Operation Enduring so yeah. that's that's a really long ten minute story uh, to, to answer a hey, question man. with with three words, but yeah, that's one of those organizations. There's quite a few others, you know. Yep. Um, I, I know that there've been a lot of national and even regional stories over the years, you know, that brought to light some organizations that weren't doing the right things, and you know, it, it's easy to make a news story out of you know shit bags taking advantage of veterans. The, the ones that are doing the really great job, you know, they don't get as much media exposure. So it's good to, to, you know, when we find them and we can work with them to be able to do that for them. Yeah. Hey, Sean, have you ever met Danny Stokes? Do you know I that name? Not, I have not, no. He does a lot of work with OEW too. So like he um, was actually, I want to say it was last year or the year before. Um, have you ever heard the uh, Endeavor Team Challenge? Oh yeah, absolutely. So Danny was working with OEW on trying to get Matthew White, who's one of their adaptive athletes, through that. Yeah. 
so yeah so that's kind of that's how i was first brought into them was danny always does he does like the spartan races with them and whatnot um out here he's from washington state yeah, so they come they come out they bring a mat team out to the dallas event every year and um we hook them up with a disabled veteran in the area uh, that's awesome uh, every year and uh it, it's kind of grown to be a thing now where we've got enough um support personnel that you know they can they can take you know two or three folks uh through each and every year and that's that's really special it doesn't receive you know any kind of media coverage which is unfortunate because it's a fantastic fantastic thing that they do yeah, yeah. And, and I, I got to say, I've always had a great deal and a great amount of respect for the guys at OEW. Oh, one thing is, well, because you know my background with the endurance uh, endurance stuff. Mm-hmm. And I will, I, I'll tell you that I've had a, several hundred people compliment me on this event or that event or just my general overall uh, way of planning things or just executing things. But the, the best, the best I heard was, from OEW, one of the gentlemen who was actually in one of my uh, one of my hurricane heats wasn't even a twelve hour, just a hurricane heat, and he pulled me to the side and he told me that that was the best showing of leadership that he'd ever seen in ten years of something or another, and that I did a damn fine job, and my dad should be proud of me, and that was a that was a guy from OEW, and I was just like, oh, okay, wow, but that that compliment for the way that I approached it, yeah, that was some um, that that was that's special to me. That that's that's the stuff that means a lot to me. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did he ask you that because you don't look like your age? You look like you're <laughs> 18, and so he was trying to. Think. <laughs> well, it could be that you know. Well, I mean, you know, I mean that was a few years ago, so I looked probably about 16 back then, um, but. <laughs> with that in mind, uh, one of the things I do want to tell you, Sean V, is that uh, my wife still has the uh, paracord bracelet. So she has that firmly attached to her ruck. And uh, so that's kind of a proud piece for her. Well, that's, you know, part of the event within the event. Yeah, yeah. So. And I mean, if you, you have to be a been there, done that to understand. Yeah. That's not and, something that, you know, people, I mean, that's, that's not public domain knowledge. Yeah. People, people have no idea, but everybody who's done, everybody who's done that event will remember that event for the rest of their life. Yeah. And, and the only thing that I will say, and cause I, I won't say anything else other because the people who are listening, who know what we're talking about, you guys know what we're talking about. But one of the things that it was always on our mind was to ensure that the event was challenging enough to to honor the the event within the event you know what i mean so they had to earn it we had we made sure and i can tell you that uh in the last go around that i had with uh, rusty and amanda keel we made sure that everybody earned that they earned it so it's um, it, it's you know you'll you'll hear about you know double and triple volunteers in the military and those people know what that means um but this is the event within the event within the event and um this isn't it since since you and i and and dylan and rusty and amanda started working on 
that specific event. It's unique out of all of the, the 12 hour hurricane heats, uh, all of the hurricane heats. It's special and it is different and it needs to be. So yeah. um, that's the way it is. Yeah. And if you want to experience that, you got to show up and you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think of, uh, have you done the, uh, the Glen Rose course when they do the beast and stuff? Oh yeah. How, what do you think about that course? Um, or, or hold on, hold on. Let me rephrase that. What year was your most favorite year of that course? 2014. Okay. Why 2014? Well, it was the first time. Oh, okay. Um, that, so that, that is innately, um, special. I had never done a beast, hadn't done anything like that since I got out of the military. I, I did it pretty much solo um, with, the, with a couple friends that, you know, but the people that, that I did it with um, made that special. And we, we were, um, we had, I guess it, it started out as, a, as about 12 people. And, you know, some of the faster people broke off early and went ahead and we never caught them. And, and we had a, a core team of, I think it was like five or six people, um, all of them from LSS. And um, we were all slow. You know, we, we were the turtle group. And we knew that there was a time cap. We knew that there was going to be a cutoff. And that year... Um, we came, we, we had just come down from the bucket carry, which was the last major obstacle before about a three mile trek back. And we had already been out there on the course for eight hours. Um, and, and we were looking, the sun was starting to go down. We had just put on our headlamps and we were really concerned that we were even going to make it back uh, before they were going to pull us off the course. When we came down, you know, down the hill on the, the bucket carry, uh, the rover in, in one of their um, four wheelers was right there and had already cleaned up a, a few groups behind us. So we knew that we were the very last group and we're like, okay, we got, we got, a, we got a hump now. And um, coming down the back stretch, um, you come up, uh, there's a bit of blacktop leading into the last mile of the course that year. And <clears throat> there were two uh, sheriff's deputies cars at the end of that, that road with their lights on. And when we came around the, the bend and saw them, we knew that, you know, our race was done. Yeah. That we weren't going to get to finish that they were going to pull us off the course. So, you know, kind of dejected, we, we ended up walking and we got, we started getting close and I was expecting them to say, Hey, you know, jump in the car, you know, your race is done. We're going to drive you back. But we just kept walking and they never said anything. So we just kept going. <laughs> um, and we had about another mile left. And <laughs> we, we were kind of in an elevated position where we could see down across the fields and see see the the ending kind of gauntlet of obstacles and it's me and and one of my friends named Shailene and we're kind of walking down getting closer and I look at her and I said like 
there's no way in hell that I'm going to be able to get up that slippery rope obstacle. I, I don't think there, there were three obstacles and I don't think that there was any way in hell that I could do any of them. And we could tell there was nobody left in the festival area. And we're like, you know what? Let's just skip them. Let's skip those three obstacles, cross the finish line and go and collapse. It's completely dark. It's like nine o'clock now. There's nobody there. You know, I don't even see any employees. Um, <laughs> there's, there's nobody, you know, the, the person at the finish line with the medals, they're not there. You know, the, <laughs> the, the fire jump is completely gone out. I mean, I, there was nobody there. And she looked at me and she was like, yeah, I'm totally done with this. So we're starting to get close. We're, th we're within about, I don't know, 250 meters. And I, we hear over the PA system, Hey, everybody in the festival area, the last group on the course is coming into the backstretch. Come on down to the finish line and cheer them on. And we just started cussing, just cussing. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know who, I don't know who the announcer was that year in 2014, but fuck that guy. Uh, he, could, he completely screwed us. So we're sitting there just cussing under our breath and we're coming up to the obstacles. And we're we're physically spent i mean um i try to get up that slippery rope and there's just no way i mean i've got no no strength left whatsoever so i go to start doing my burpees some dude i don't even know jumps over the wall jumps over the the uh retaining wall there and starts cranking out burpees for and then another girl jumps over, and then five people, and then 20 people. And they all just crank out those burpees for us and carry us across the finish line. There. So yeah, 2014 will always be special because of that. I get it. I absolutely get it, you know. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it you you go through things, you know, when you have that type of exertion and you have those type of challenges, and and particularly on those courses. And one of the things that I, you know, that I kind of learned with Spartan, having worked with them, ran ran for them, you know, ran with them and stuff like that, ran the Spartans, is is there's a lot of people who who they don't fix the broken, but they fill the broken. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, that's well put. You know, and, and that's that that in and in itself in and of itself is a service. And I don't think that it was an intended service when the company was first run. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it would it become it became kind of like a happy byproduct of. of yeah, for uh, sure. I mean, there's yeah. th those were evolutions of the community that you and there's that's one of the things that well it's the thing that has always attracted me is the people yeah you know, um i i've met i met my wife through OCO. i met some of my best friends for life through OCO. Yeah. um there's there's so many uh incredible and fantastic individuals that I would have never intersected my life with had it not been for, for OCO. Yeah. 
Yeah, and see, I'm the, <clears throat> I'm almost the exact opposite of that because you, Sean, you've heard of Go Ruck, right? Yeah, of course. So, I did Go Ruck first, which is not an OCR, but it's still it's got its own little special, right. unique place in the world. Yeah. So, um, but you know, and I think Kuehl, you said it best. It kind of fills in what's broken. Is that was the I was in ROTC when I was in college and Air Force ROTC as well. So I went to Lackland Air Force Base uh, for field training uh, right before my uh, junior year. And so there's a camaraderie that you get in that type of environment that you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. And so with GORUCK, it was that same thing of like the first GORUCK event I did in February, 2013. In that class of people, there were 21 of us. I talked to seven of those people every single day. And I have for the last eight years. Yeah. Um, the other 14, probably once a week, one, you know, minimum once a month. Some of them have moved out of state. Some of them have done other things, but, uh, or deactivated the book face. But, um, you know, but I have maintained contact with over 50% where I, I could honestly say that it's, we're lifelong friends now. Some of the relationships that are created through these events are lifelong. And it's, really and it's, and it's something to be said about, and it's hard to, you can't relate if you haven't done, but it's that being there for somebody under immense pressure and getting them through it. And, you know, your normal day to day, that doesn't necessarily happen at all. And that's, you know, during events, that's, I'm that guy that you have to have sometimes. And it kind of filled that void of, I'm not the fast guy, I'm the slow guy, but I'm the heavy guy, <laughs> you know, and to feel like kind of that, like, okay, I can help these people. And then you know, when we have to go fast, they're helping me. It's not me against the world. It's me and my team against the world. Yeah. And it, there's something to be said about that bond that you create in those instances. So, yeah. and then we did well, Spartan afterwards. <laughs> That's the... Well, yeah, there's that bond because there's always, there's, um, there's, a, there's a brotherhood in shared suffering because you have a shared experience and it's a shared negative experience and, and, the, the ability to survive and, and be successful uh, throughout the negative experience kind of bonds people together. That and also there's a realism in exhaustion. There's, you, you don't have the energy to put up a facade, a fake, a front. You, you don't have the energy to be fake. You have to be real. And that's when you get to see the realist characters of people is in that exhausted, in, in that exhausted phase when they can no longer pretend to be somebody that they're not. And so when you, when, you, when you go through that with somebody and you see their real face and you still like them, then that has a tendency to be a little bit more solid of a friendship than just, uh, you know, just kind of an acquaintanceship or, you know, somebody that you might have run a 5K with. You know what I mean? That's absolutely yep. true, 100%. So, and I think, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that a lot of that shared suffering when you do these types of events that kind of feeds that secret little need of brotherhood that you got from like the military and I got from being a hotshot, you know, a first responder because, and like I was telling uh, one of our uh, uh, previous uh, guests is that once you're in that type of environment, everything else is decaf coffee for you. Because every, you know, because you, you live in an elevated state, or at least I, you know, I did, and I needed something that was elevated, and that shared suffering was that elevated state that I'd been missing, you know, from my hotshot days. 
Yeah. Um, you talk to, I, w I would venture to say damn near every single veteran out there. And they will tell you that they miss the military. They don't miss being in the military. And what they miss is the people. What they miss is that camaraderie, um, that brotherhood, that, that kinship that you have with fellow human beings that have to go through the same things that you are and they're difficult, they're not easy. Yeah. Um, there, there are bonds built uh, through that shared adversity that withstand uh, the tests of time. I mean, I know that sounds cliche, but it's really true. Well, I think that's, the, that's been <clears throat> one of the clearest, you know, examples of uh, the problem with COVID is that you removed that avenue of kinship and expression for a lot of people where, you know, there's certain companies, I don't, uh, you probably know Spartan's still doing, I know GoRuck is still doing events sporadically. Yeah. You know, that need is, it's almost insatiable in some instances where people really, need, that's their get out of home. It's their get out of Dodge to go and do that. You know, I've got friends that travel around the country to do those things. You know, friends in California and Vermont doing a Spartan race. You're like, oh, that's, you know, and since you can't do it, it kind of makes it tougher. So I'm excited to get back to, you know, people being able to do those types of things. Well, I mean, okay, so you touched on COVID. So let me let me kick this this door open then. But just a couple of uh, things, Sean B, is, is like during COVID with the lockdown, and if you can share a little bit of your experiences, what, 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 what did you deal with uh, with COVID and the lockdown? I mean, how did you manage it? And uh, I got one follow-up question for you after that. From, are, are you asking from the perspective of the foundation or personal? Uh, personally on this one. Well, the, um, the foundation first, will be next. <laughs> first, you know, I'll tell everybody, I came down with COVID um, back in August, mid-August. I woke, uh, woke up Saturday morning uh, and uh, was coughing a little bit. Felt like I was coming down with, uh, with a cold or a flu bug. <clears throat> There's a little bit of cough right there. And uh, on Monday, I went down to um, one of those little corner emergency, I don't even know what they're really called, uh, clinics. Yep. And they had a testing station set up. And my wife and I got tested. Uh, she was not showing any symptoms yet, but I was. So my test, uh, I had results back that afternoon that I was positive. Uh, her results came back about a week later, six days, I guess, and she was positive as well. Uh, I made an appointment with my doctor, a televisit, and we went over everything, and um, he prescribed for me what he could, which wasn't a whole lot, and um, then it was just, okay, let's see what happens. Um, I know a lot of your listeners probably you know, don't know my my story, but um, a year previous, last year, I was in the hospital for about three months after suffering a series of heart attacks, which then put me into a coma uh, for, for just about three weeks. And uh, I had uh, systemic organ failures of, well, pretty much everything. 
uh, lungs, liver, kidneys, um, you name it. And I was not given um, very high chances to live. Um, you know, they, they called my folks and told them to come in because they didn't, uh, they didn't think I was going to live. Uh, fortunately, obviously, I did and pulled through that. But um, that checks off about 10 different risk factors for COVID. So when I tested positive, um, that was that was pretty a pretty gloom day um, because we knew that with those risk factors, my age and my health, that um, the prognosis was not good. Um, so the first week was actually not bad um, at all. Uh, those first six, seven days, you know, it just is a little bit of a cough. It got progressively worse. Um, I started to develop a fever. <coughs> um, and then right around the seven or eight day mark is when it got, when it got bad. And um, it went from, you know, mildly annoying to, okay, this is, this is pretty horrible. Um, I've had pneumonia a few times in my life, and this was considerably worse than those. Uh, there would be times where the coughing got so in, so intense that I literally couldn't couldn't get oxygen back into my lungs, and I would black out on the sofa and just fall over. Um, when my pulse ox numbers uh, dropped down to about 92, 93, and my temperature was over 102. Uh, we went to the hospital, and my wife dropped me off at the ER doors, and I walked in, and you know, of course, you know, they took a look at me, and I fully expected for them to admit me into the hospital and put me on a ventilator. Um, but unfortunately, every last bed in the hospital was taken, and uh, they said, "I'm sorry, sir, but we literally don't have a single room available." Um, you know. You, you've got to go back home and um, hopefully everything turns out okay. <clears throat> um, that's a pretty hopeless, helpless feeling. Um, but I went back home and about four or five days later after that, the fever broke finally and the coughing started to subside. And um, all in all, it was three to four weeks of an ordeal for me um, physically. Um, a lot of those days were really horrible. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody. Um, I tried to, um, I tried to sleep as much as I could um, because that was, I, I could get, I could get a break away from the coughing. And that, that's the only thing that you want to do is you just want to stop coughing. Um, but as suddenly as it kind of came on, it left. And, uh, you know, it takes a while for, it has taken a while for my lungs to clear out. Um, and, you know, the, the poor health and poor condition of my lungs you know, left over from what happened last year certainly has exasperated that. But, you know, I'm, I'm back to like 95% health right now. Um, 
I still have a little bit of a cough that catches me every once in a while, but you know, by and large, you know, I'm recovered now. But uh, yeah, it it really sucked. Yeah, and I gotta think. Wow, it's just like first you've you know first you have you know uh, <laughs> first you're pretty much you almost die, then you have COVID, and you got to be thinking what's next. How uh, what about uh, what about your uh, organization? Um, so, how has how how is how is the, the lockdown affected you guys? Uh, it's well, it's been. I don't want to say use the word catastrophic, but uh, you know, I mean, we we've had to we've had to shut down um, all of the plans uh, for for 2020. You know, um, right now um, it's the 19th of October. Um, I would literally be in Dallas right now preparing for our 2020 gala which was originally scheduled for the 23rd. Uh, the next day is the Dallas Beast, um, which we would be there and set up for in the 12 hour hurricane heat and the events there. But none of that is happening, uh, obviously this year. Our charity golf tournament that we have every April, that got canceled. And all of the various events that, that we attend, Spartan races, Savage races, Tough Mudders, uh, Green Beret Challenge, uh, all of those um, were canceled this year. So th there's there's just there's nothing. So um, we had to go into survival mode to make sure that there is a foundation um, once COVID has released its grip from our society and, and the world at large. So. Uh, yeah, we've we've been in kind of hyper mode, hibernation mode, and uh, we've slowly been trying to come out of that now for the last three or four weeks, and starting to make plans for the twenty twenty one calendar year. Did has the lock the the lockdown has that kind of affected like uh, like your organizational structure or anything, um, like how you approach things or like you know did you have to like streamline anything uh, to make it more sustainable for potentially a new type of economy? No, I guess we're fortunate in that regard. We're a 100% all-volunteer organization. So okay. nobody was reliant on you know, the organization you know, for their salary um, or, or any, any kind of income uh, you know, to, to provide for their families. So yeah. um, there wasn't an impact to any of us in, in that regard. But there is a very real impact on the other end of that equation. If, if we're not doing events, if we're not generating merchandise that, that our, our followers and our supporters are purchasing, we're not raising funds for veterans who need it. So those are the stories that you're not hearing. You know, um, while us not being able to do our usual thing this year, you know, is a little bit sad for us, but it's the impact that's really the tragedy. Um, the, the good things that we're able to do with that money and the people that we're able to help and the lives that we're able to, to impact, uh, none of that happens now and more and more people suffer because of it. And it's not just our organization, of course, this is across the board. You know, it's, it's all charities in all segments, not just veteran charities. So it's, it's across the board and it's, it's devastating. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's going to get to the point where this. I mean, 
organizations like yours are, are so important right now. And, and it's just going to, you guys are just going to be more important as, as time starts to come, you know, and I can, you know, you can kind of see that anyways. Um, Sean, do you have anything else for Sean? No, Sean, this has been great. I, um, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, giving us some of the stories, you know, I think um, your stories are pretty inspiring and, uh, you know, for me, I got choked up a little bit on a couple of those, so I had to mute myself for a hot minute. <laughs> so thank you for uh, being, you know, that honest and transparent with us. I really appreciate that. No, thank you guys for having me on. Um, it's it's nice to have an opportunity to be able to, to tell a few of those stories and um, you know, talk about the foundation a little bit and uh, get people interested uh, and involved in, in veteran affairs in general. So, so thank you guys both for, for allowing me that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I mean, with that being said, I mean, how can we reach you? How can everybody reach you, you know, uh, to either help, donate, um, volunteer, you know, um, where, where can we find you? Operationvalor.org. Um, you can get us there on our website. Um, we've always got a slew of, of merchandise options. You can also reach our support email address there. We, of course, have got social media presence. Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, even on Twitter. Uh, look for Op Valor and the number one, O-P-V-A-L-O-R and the number one. Um, I think on Instagram, it's actually full Operation Val at Operation Valor. So you can find us there anytime. Um, and of course, if you're interested in, in volunteering or would like to, to spend some of your time uh, with us, uh, reach out to me directly on, on Facebook and uh and we can talk awesome would that be the same information that like if organizations wanted to reach out to you would they use the same information yes. as well yes that's okay that's the the same exact contact information okay perfect awesome uh sean hey man it thanks for spending the time with us dude i, I know you could have done something else but hey we really appreciate that you're here and uh, yeah man it's, it, yeah it's always it's always good to talk to you man so it's all you know it's 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 a shame that that lot the lockdown happened because that was we were actually headed up there to uh, yeah. to Rice, Texas, for uh, for three elements. So 2021, actually, we're looking for this almost the same thing. So you're going to end up. Um, I'll end up. I'm going to contact you here probably in the next month because so we got plans going. So but awesome, Sean. Uh, thank you very much, man. I really Thanks appreciate you it. Y'all have a great one. Sure. Right. Yep. Talk to you soon. Right. Bye.